The Week in Bible Prophecy, a Prophecy Watchers podcast. Welcome to The Week in Bible Prophecy, uh, the Prophecy Watchers podcast. And uh, we're going to be talking with Bill Solis this week as it relates to all things going on in Israel. And there is so much going on. And one of the other things I want to remind everybody is to make sure and check out OrlandoProphecySummit.com where we are going to be having a, uh, again, world-class uh, prophecy summit, over 23 speakers in Orlando, Florida, starting uh, real easy to remember, February 29th, which is a leap day. And uh, Bill Solis is going to be there as well. Certainly, as we watch things unfold, he'll have a lot to share and discuss about um, the, the Middle East kind of being on the precipice of of a potential huge war, small war. We'll talk about all that today. And uh, Bill, welcome to the to the podcast. Hey, Mano, it's great. That conference is going to be very interesting because we just had the one with Prophecy Watchers in Norman, Oklahoma. And right in the middle of that conference, October 7th, had that Gaza war breakout with the Hamas. And boy, that, that really lit up the whole audience. They're going, oh no, what, what just happened overnight, right? And now we've had some time to go by, and Israel's inside of the Gaza now. They're trying to eliminate the Hamas. So we're going to have a lot to look back upon by the time we get together on that leap day in February 29th. Yeah, it's pretty amazing because uh, all of us woke up. There we are in the middle of a of a prophecy conference, and we all woke up that Saturday morning, and we saw the, the news. We were just the, the stuff was coming out about all the extent of it. And of course, you know, we heard you and, and, and Bill Caning up on stage and had a little uh, uh, moderated uh, Q&A trying to assess the situation. You know, th- that's l- let's before we move on, I want to let's talk about that in the sense that what we saw on October 7th, uh, try to remind people that, you know, there's over 1200 people were, were killed, you know, between 1200 and 1400 that you have different numbers coming out. But the equivalent of that in an America proportion would be 55,000 people being killed or, you know, and others being kidnapped uh, on, on American soil by a terrorist organization. And what, what would the America do if you had over 50,000 people killed? I mean, the, truly what Israel did in, in declaring war on Hamas was the right thing to do. But it really shook up, Bill, the the status quo. You know, we've been talking, again, a lot of things for a while, but boom, this happened, and now, at least in the land of Israel, things are different now. To talk about, let's, let's, let's talk about that. How are things different now? Well, really, ultimately, Israel now has to take care of some serious business. The, the proxies of Iran surrounding Israel, of which Hamas is among them, Uh, Israel knew at some point they would have to deal with them. They have been preparing to deal with them for quite some time. Even back in May of 2022, they had a massive chariots of fire military drill preparing to take out Iran and their proxies and experienced a lot of casualties. Uh, How would they treat that with triage and things like that? And, of course, we see uh, just from Hamas, they've had all kinds of casualties and they got hostages. There was 1,200-plus people killed. That's just Hamas. Uh, the Hezbollah, with all their missile power, on a larger level than we're experiencing right now as we talk, Hezbollah is getting involved with skirmishes just to let Israel know, don't forget about us. But guess what? Israel is saying, we're not forgetting about you. In fact, you're, you could be next if you get involved. So Israel has to do its business right now to, to dwell securely because the threats are all around them. And, and you know they've been bombing Syria intermittently for several years now. And as this started heating up with the Gaza, 
They took out the Damascus airport and the Aleppo airport for a period of time. Uh, you know, Israel is at war with Syria as well, and people kind of forget about that. They don't have peace treaties with Syria like they do with Jordan with Egypt. So you know, Israel is at war with Syria, and they're a, a proxy of, of Iran's as well. Yeah, it's amazing to me that uh, just as in many ways it took several years after uh, our um, you know, 9-11, uh, September of, of 2001, the it took several years for the the ramifications of of policy, governmental policy, or even you know going across the world uh, to 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 battle some of these terrorists. In the same way, this is going to be uh, relatively protracted, in, in my opinion, because the, Israel they they made a decision that <laughs> every last Hamas leader is going to be uh, tracked down and eliminated. And so that's going to take some time, no doubt, in, in, with their tunnel system and other things. But I think the reminder, as you said, Bill, with, with Hezbollah, Hezbollah has been uh, surprisingly quiet. They haven't gone all in. We don't know all the details, a lot of speculation of why that might be, but they haven't gone away. And the fact of the matter is, you know, they have 150, 200,000, uh, you know, precision guided missiles that they can do. And the fact of the matter is, I think Israel learned something here in that, from 2005 with Gaza, allowing and hoping and believing, however you want to phrase it, that Hamas would, would choose wisely and, and actually love their people, um, it, they allowed them to build up now, you know, basically almost 20 years. So in that case, it, give me your thoughts on the fact that what have they learned from that? Looking at Hezbollah, I mean, any Hezbollah is going to, they're going to continue to send, you know, rockets or whatever. They, they'll do it here and there. But after uh, Hamas, that's, that situation is mopped up, they pretty much have to go in and remove Hezbollah and risk it because why give them another 10 years? They're just postponing it, kicking the can down the road, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Uh, they've got to deal with all these issues. And they right now, their advantage is that the proxies of Iran and Iran itself has not engaged on a very severe level like they potentially could and potentially might still do. So Israel's actually having it kind of their way. And no one wants, of course, a war and a ground war, especially inside of that ter you know, treacherous Gaza Strip area. But Israel's getting to go full throttle without a lot of problems from the proxies because that, that could change the whole face of this war if Hezbollah gets involved in Syria, et cetera. But at some point, Israel's going to have to deal with them. Of course, there's evacuations to about 300,000 people between the southern part by the Gaza and the northern borders of Israel are still evacuated, as best I understand. And they don't feel safe going back to their homes until you know all these issues, Hamas and Hezbollah, are dealt with. So th you know, this is a, a big situation going on with Israel. But the point is, when Hezbollah does get involved, which will probably at that point also enlist Syria, I don't think I don't think Hezbollah would go it alone. Uh, and chemical weapons probably coming forward because Syria's got chemical weapons. Uh, things are different. It's not just going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat and like what's going on in the Gaza. Uh, they're going to be blowing places up. And ultimately, they're probably going to blow up the city of Damascus and fulfill a prophecy in Isaiah 17. Yeah, do you, do you think, uh, I mean, I again, the going back, the whole situation has changed so much that they cannot again i just don't think they're going to sit there and go well if they're quiet um if they're quiet for a few years we'll just let them be uh they know they know that was an absolute mistake uh, with with uh hamas and the fact of the matter as you know bill that 
Syria is kind of the the the, the transport highway of bringing uh, munitions from Iran over into Syria through Syria into Hezbollah. I mean, just they they this is it. I think it's kind of like a they're going to be having a bad political press anyway, and Hezbollah will make it easy. That's why I think it'll be in my mind one one. Just finally, another bomb will go off. It might not even be significant. A rocket is launched, and they're just going to say, enough is enough, and the pretext will be there because Hezbollah gave it. Well, you know, the fact that Israel is involved with Gaza right now in a you know, full-on war and ground invasion has sort of, they've been content with allowing skirmishes to take place with Hezbollah to the north. Remember, in 2006, two Israeli soldiers were kidnapped by Hezbollah, and that launched a full-on war with Hezbollah, a 34-day conflict in the summer of 2006. 4,000 missiles were sent into Israel by Hezbollah, and a lot of the northern people in Haifa and northern parts of Israel were in bomb shelters for about 30 days. And that was just two kidnapped soldiers. So we got a lot more worse things going on right now with Hezbollah to the north than that. Than that which on their own accord would cause a war, major war with Israel and Hezbollah and Lebanon. But because they're involved with the Gaza, they're just trying to have skirmishes. They're okay with that, in my estimation, and not go to full, full-on confrontation with Hezbollah because they're too busy down in the Gaza. But keep in mind that what's Israel going to do after they clear out the Gaza? And that's their goal right now. Fortunately, they're doing it without, without being too much impeded. They're in a war mode right now. They still got people evacuated. They want to go back to their homes. Are they going to say, "Okay, kumbaya, uh, Syria, we, you know, we trust you're not going to use chemicals on us. Hezbollah, we trust you're not going to send missiles at us. Hezbollah can send. In the first part of the war, analysts were saying six thousand missiles a day once Hezbollah gets involved. That would taper down to about two thousand on the second level. Effective missiles coming in, meaning not falling indiscriminately in fields or being taken out by the Iron Dome. And by the way, the Iron Dome is being depleted as we speak. So, you know, I think Iran is kind of watching this all play out and deciding what, what time they feel they they and their proxy, other proxies may want to get involved. So this thing is not over yet, I want to know. Well, and I think exactly, perfectly said, Bill, because what people need to understand is uh, that Hamas is... Again, a big black eye here, certainly on on Israel, but Hamas is not Hezbollah. Hezbollah is well, <laughs> way more trained, way more munitions, way more backing, just from a geographical perspective as well. I mean, what's your thoughts on the different? Maybe make a comparison for the for the listeners. What is the, What do you think is the comparison as it relates to the military strength of Hezbollah versus Hamas? Well, there's no comparison. Uh, Hezbollah, if, if you look at it like on a chessboard, Hezbollah is like a, uh, Hamas is like a pawn. You know, Hezbollah and Syria would be like, you know, bishops and rooks coming against Israel. Of course, the queen would be Iran, who can move in any, every different direction and, and pulling the, the strings on those proxies of theirs. You know, one of the examples is there's been some confrontations in with some of the, the beholding uh, Shiite militias inside of Iraq who are also proxies, they've been called upon by Iran to, you know, come after our installations. We've got some American installations on the border of Syria and Iraq, and they've attacked them, and they find out that, and they've, they've done some harm, but you find out that a lot of those attacks were with handmade weapons, 
not necessarily the high-powered weapons that Iran is capable of providing. So we're kind of looking at like the different layers. It's like, okay, here, here comes these handmade weapons with Shia militias in Iraq. Here come these little more advanced things coming out of Hamas, you know, thousands of missiles they've had. But th these are not compared to the, the deployment of missiles that Iran has done through Syria over the last four or five years into Hezbollah's hands. Uh, those things are precision guided, and they can take they can hit with pinpoint accuracy, and they can take out lots of people and buildings and things like that. So Israel knows that, and they can't allow Hezbollah. My concern is with Israel, they want to get through this Gaza thing without much more confrontation. Fortunately, they're in that mode right now. But at any given moment, if Iran says, okay, it's, it's time to get involved, because by the way, Iran is moving forward to get a nuclear weapon. You're not hearing much about the IAEA going, hey, guess what? Iran's been you know, good. They're standing side by side. They're not doing nuclear weapons. No, what we're hearing right now is they've enriched uranium up to 60% or a higher grade, 20 times the amount of stockpile they were allowed to have, according to the JCPOA. So Iran is moving forward, and, and probably, if they don't already have it, got a nuclear weapon. Before October 7th, the, in, the Gaza, the Hamas attack, there are reports coming out that Iran was two weeks away from having fissile materials to build a nuclear weapon. And that was a few weeks before October 7th. So, I mean, you know, none of that's changed. You're not hearing much about Iran's nuclear program right now. You know, it's amazing, too, because, again, these guys are, uh, they definitely are brilliant strategists because, uh, as you said, the I just read an article a couple of days ago how they were increasing, once again, their their efforts at, you know, centrifuges and stuff like that, 90,000 or something like that, where, uh, but nevertheless, now you have public opinion turning against Israel for every day of the Hamas ground invasion. Uh, and you have the distraction, everybody's looking over there and they're scrutinizing Israel, they're scrutinizing Hamas, they're scrutinizing hospitals and tunnels and other things. Why, uh, while Iran is, is um, cranking it up. So, again, a very good strategy. Let me ask you this question. It's something just, I know we're kind of just speculating, but there, there's talks of Iran abandoning, or even Hezbollah or Syria, abandoning Hamas, um, al allowing them to, to get taken out or to, to be removed, again, as they should be. Uh, do you think that's the case? Has Iran abandoned them? Well, that is the interesting question, because if they have, because Hamas was literally a proxy of Iran, and they actually had serious training drills going on you know, several weeks or months prior to this attack. So to think that Hamas did this on their own, this strategy that was very well put together to come and kill those people and massacre them, take these hostages. Everybody was wondering if Iran had orchestrated that for them. And if all of a sudden they abandoned Hamas, it's like they were willing to let go of, of a pawn in their proxy army, which is be surprising to me, but that's kind of what's going on so far. I'm surprised nothing more has happened than that. But Khomeini may have been wanting to see, uh, and the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard may have been wanting to see the world's response. Maybe they were taken back by Biden sending over the warships over to the Middle East. Um, maybe some things that didn't happen exactly the way they thought. Uh, Hezbollah is involved on a smaller level, so I mean, maybe they will abandon them. But to me, that would be kind of shocking because they have they have funded them, they're a legitimate proxy of Iran's. And if that happened, it's probably because they got a little concerned about the 
response of what was going on with America and that sort of thing. Would America now come get involved with Israel and attack Iran as well? That might be one of their concerns. Yeah, I think the, I think you nailed it. Uh, that's what that's what I have been watching too. Is that was kind of unanticipated to have uh, America send over a couple of carrier groups and other things. Um, you know, on that note, let, let's talk about let, let's make a transition here for a minute because. I want to talk about Biden and the Biden administration's uh, policies, and I want to talk about um, this this new, well, not new, but this re-energized push for a two-state solution. But before we do that, why do you think, uh, I mean, I don't trust Biden to, to, to protect Israel. Why do you think Biden sent uh, the two carrier groups over? I know, again, we're just speaking out loud, speculating here, but what what, what do you think his, his angle was? I, I don't, again, I don't give him... I don't give him the benefit of the doubt, but what do you think? Why did he do it? Well, I mean, on the one hand, I'm kind of proud that he did do that. Um, he may have he may have economic reasons as well as military reasons. He probably does not want an all-out war to you know blow up in the whole Middle East, which is where that was actually going to go. That's where this was headed. Uh, but and I think he did support Israel on a pro level initially, but again, now we're starting to see that the dust is settling. He's going back to his old ways, which is, you know, push for a two-state solution. He's, he's actually saying things like this, that Israel's going to pursue Hamas in the Gaza till there's no more Hamas terrorists to kill Israelis. Well, that's a great statement, okay, so that you're giving Israel the green light to go get all of Hamas. But then on the other side of his mouth, he's going, but you can't occupy the Gaza after you take out Hamas, Israel. You've got to have a revitalized or a rebranded Palestinian Authority go in there now and take and take care of the people there. Now remember the Palestinian Authority and Mohammed Abbas in the West Bank, and they're no friend of Israel's as well. And there's been all kinds of problems in the West Bank as this war is going on too. A lot of settlers have been killed. A lot of Palestinians in the West Bank are being killed. There's confrontations going on there as well. So, and then ultimately he's going to say with that revitalized Palestinian Authority, who you can now trust Israel, which they can't trust. Uh, we had to have a two-state solution, which is not biblically endorsed. Clinton tried it in 2000 and failed miserably. Bush tried it. Obama tried it with John Kerry in 2014. It always fails. It's not going to happen because God has other plans. He has his own Mideast peace plan, and he's been operating since two, the 20th century, part one, and the 21st century, part two is going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the... <laughs> it's it's like the these people that are they're fighting over and it's just it's just a recipe for disaster and and when we think about uh, th those watching or those listening I mean not, again not everybody is 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 uh spends their time looking at all this but the the fascinating thing is the the typical I mean just logical the basic common sense is and I think Netanyahu said it best he said look I mean I know I know it's logical in one sense that, well, the only remaining authority uh, that would represent the Palestinians is the Palestinian Authority. But the fact of the matter is, uh, we're not going to hand control over to a group that teaches their children from the time they're young to hate Jews, to kill Jews, and also that pays terrorist money uh, who, uh, again, aid money for how many Jews they can kill or whatever, it, martyrs. We're not going to allow that kind of uh, of group to come in. Why would we, again, exchange, you know, remove Satan and then put his right hand deputy right in there? I mean, I mean that's just foolish. 
Uh, we have the you know the Fatah is in the West Bank, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorist organization. You know, it's not like the Palestinian Authority has control over those those populations inside the West Bank, and it's not like they've got a clean slate either. So, th- 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 like you said, they're Israel's enemies. In fact, I'm pretty sure even in the West West Bank, like the uh, Gaza, that the uh, Palestinian school books don't even have Israel on their on yep. their map. So pretty much, you know, you can't trust them at all. No, absolutely. Well, let, let, you mentioned a, a phrase a, a few minutes ago. Um, let, let's talk about um, wh- what is God's uh, Mideast peace plan, and let's let's kind of develop that a little bit here. You you sent me some notes, which I appreciate, and uh, I'll read if you don't mind. Uh, Jeremiah chapter twelve. Is, is, can I read that now? You like that? Yeah, go ahead and read it. But let me preface the fact that God, before you do that, God does have a plan. You know. Of course, he knew when he would bring back the Jews into the land, which there are numerous prophecies, <clears throat> excuse me, that talked about that. Uh, they would come back in the land after being out in the nations of the world and the diaspora. But God knew, knowing the end from the beginning, that there'd be some problems because the ancient hatred that had plagued that the Arabs and the Jews from time immemorial, he knew it would be alive and well, but not only alive and well, wouldn't go away after the diaspora, would be embraced in the violent religion of Islam. So he, he had to realize when I bring the Jews back in the land, I've got to have a plan for that. And so he tells Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, 2,500 years ago, he lays out this plan, which we've already found part one has found, been fulfilled. We'll get into that in just a second. You're going to read it. And part two is, is going to find fulfillment in the very near future. Yeah, I mean, let, let's. this is Zechariah, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 12, Verses 14 and 15, thus says the Lord against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance, which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be after I have plucked them out that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. I mean, the historically. Uh, you know, I, I know you you know this, but what are has this been? I guess the, the just straight up question: uh, Hasn't this been um, fulfilled in in the past? Well, this is part one, and it has been in the 20th century. But notice as we break this down, uh, he's not saying anything good about the neighbors. He's calling them evil, not good neighbors. Even though they're evil, he's going to have compassion on them. We just read that, that have compassion on them and bring them back. So what he's saying here is that when I bring the Jews back in the land, there's going to be resistance. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take your evil neighbors, I'm going to pluck you out of the land, which is Israel's inheritance. And I'm going to put you back in your own lands and your heritage. I'm going to do this wonderful thing. Because remember, Mondo, from 1517 to 1917, that was impossible because the Ottoman Empire controlled the Middle East. But after World War I in 1917, uh, things started to open up so God could fulfill this plan in preparation to bring the Jews back in the land. And he says, listen, I'm going to pull you out of the land that's going to be Israel, put you back into your states, your Arab states, and get your heritage back installed and that sort of thing. And I'm also, because there'll be Jews, the, the, the Jews, of course, were living in those Arab lands as well, I'm going to pluck them out. This is all forceful language. Like, no one's going to want to do it voluntarily. They've got their homes, their businesses, you know. But I'm going to put them back in Israel, the Jews, 
and take you Arabs out of Israel and put you into your own land. So you talked about that being fulfilled. The sovereign act of God, this compassionate plan, started to find fulfillment in the 20th century after World War One. Yet Egypt became a state again in 1922. Yet Saudi Arabia and Iraq in 1932. Iran, which was formerly Persia, became Iran in 1935. Lebanon, 1943, and of course now you got Hezbollah there. Syria and Jordan, 1946, and then here comes Israel in 1948. So we see that God sovereignly, amazingly preparing his peace plan. This is a resettlement plan. This is a land for peace deal extraordinaire. He fulfilled that in 19, in the 20th century as all those Arabs got their statehood again. That's an amazing act of God to do all that. And it could only happen after the Ottoman Empire had collapsed and after World War One. You know, and it's interesting. I was um, I was doing another uh, interview a couple weeks ago, and one of the comments was made that um, by uh, basically somebody who was kind of anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, and Christian person. But they said, you know, God is not a land broker. And uh, I was like, have you never read the Bible? <laughs> I mean, because if you go back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter one, basically one through three, where Moses is recounting uh, their wandering in the desert in the wilderness, and he's like, "Okay, that we traveled along the south, you know, in the Sinai, and then made our way up from the southeast, and then up towards what we understand as Ammon today, and then they were going across the Jordan River into the land of the conquest in, in the book of Joshua." But God says. Okay, over there, that's that was given to Esau. That's not your land. You're not going to touch it. It's you're never going to have an ounce of it because I gave it to the descendants of Esau. Oh, that that's the descendants of Lot. You're not going to have an ounce of that land or an inch. I gave it to them. And so you have God clearly being a land broker uh, th throughout. And in the same way today, uh, what you just described or what what the scripture described is: look, everybody's going to go back to their own heritage because God has given. Uh, he's given certain uh, acres and plots, so to speak, of land to certain ethnic groups. Is that still true? Yeah, it is. And we just saw that. Uh, the compassionate plan in the 20th century, getting the states back. Uh, his goal, you're going to read in part two, is that they would live, they would coexist peacefully amidst his people. All that land, of course, is in the measurements of the promised land of Genesis 15, 18 from the river of Egypt, probably the Nile to the river Euphrates, which courses through modern-day Iraq and Syria. So Jordan, of course, with Ammon and Moab, the descendants a lot, uh, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, and southern Jordan, modern-day Jordan. That's all part of the overall promised land, and they could stay there and live peacefully, as you'll see in part two of God's plan, as long as they coexist with Israel peacefully, and you're going to find out the one condition. The one condition God asked for, for all he did, to bring them back to their lands, his compassionate plan, bring, give them their heritages back, which he did last century. He's only going to ask one thing of them, and I'm going to have you read that now, part two. Yeah, let me read that. This Verse is uh, Jeremiah 12, 16, 17. It says, And it shall be, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey... I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. So here's the consequence, and here's what's going to find fulfillment part two in the 21st century. Uh, listen, God says, I did all that for you, and all I'm asking is that you would learn carefully the ways of my people 
to swear by my name, the God of the Bible, not the God of the Quran, Allah, as the Lord lives, as they taught my people back at Jeremiah's time to swear by Baal, the false god Baal. And at that time, the zeal of swearing by Baal with the Israelis back then, they were actually sacrificing their children to this false god. So God's saying, look, with that same zeal, swear by my name. I mean, I deserve it. Look what I just did for you. I gave you all your states back, your, your evil neighbors, but I gave you back to your lands and your heritages. And all I'm asking for you to do, you could dwell in, in the midst of my people, swear by my name, and we can all live copacetically. You and the Jews could live side by side. That was God's plan. But if you do not, the consequence is grave. I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation. And that's where we're going in the 21st century because they're not going to change, Mondo. They're not going to swear by Jehovah, by God of the Bible. They want to wipe Israel off the map. They, they want to continue to swear by Allah. And unfortunately for them, because of that position, they're going to be utterly plucked up and destroyed, the evil neighbors we're talking about. So that's that's where we're going in the near future. And we're already seeing one of those evil neighbors going and taking to task with Hamas. You know, it's amazing, Bill, that, you know, today in the church age, which, which we know we're living in, uh, and I think all of us recognize that, um, you know, we're to love everybody. We're to love uh, a, a Palestinian or a Jordanian or a Lebanese just as much as we are an Israeli uh, because, you know, we want them to hear the gospel. But it's interesting that God speaking here, um, he actually calls <laughs> this group evil. But we, we don't want to, we don't, we don't like to use that language because we're trying to be Christian nice, which is fine. But, you know, and I, I'm not, and for me, we're all sinners. I'm not putting the finger. But when God says something and, and declares a group of people because of their, their stubbornness and their, their loyalty to a false God, when he calls them evil with evil intentions, that's pretty powerful to me. Uh, and, and, and again, the God of the Bible hasn't changed. We don't have a God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. But, he calls them evil. He's, he gives them an opportunity, which again, the gospel goes out to all of them. Here's the opportunity to to serve the Lord and Him alone, and not certainly Islam. Well, you're absolutely right. You know, God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son for everybody that they would not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believe in Jesus Christ, Jew, Gentiles, of course, Arabs among them. Uh, that's the God we serve, Mondo. But He also uh, He's got plans in the end times here through his people of Israel. He's, that's why he's bringing them back and has brought them back into the land. And so for them, the Arabs to come along and persist with this ancient hatred to want to wipe the Jews off the map, ultimately not realizing that's going to thwart God's plan through Israel, he can't allow that to happen. And, and the Bible talks about this ancient hatred or perpetual enmity in Ezekiel 35, verse 5, and Ezekiel 25, verse 15. And it's called, the Hebrew words are olam ibah. And it's a condition of hatred that stems back long ago in ancient times that became more violent as time went on. And it's a hatred that will not end. It's cancerous. It has to be surgically removed. And that's what's caught up in Islam. That's how the Hamas feels. They want to, their charter says Israel will exist until Islam will obliterate it. You know, Psalm 83 talks about a confederacy of nations. That come together, the, the, the goal is to wipe the nation of Israel off the map that the name of Israel can be remembered no more, Psalm 3, verse 4. So, you know, we saw that, of course, in 1948. They tried to wipe Israel off the map. They didn't want there to be in Israel. Uh, it didn't ultimately fulfill the prophecy, but I think it was a precursor. And we're seeing, again, Hamas, who's also part of Psalm 3, 
uh, acting out right now, wanting to wipe Israel off the map, thinking their proxies are going to come alongside and help them with that. Hezbollah and Lebanon, they'd be part of Psalm 83. Syria would be part of Psalm 83, as well as more countries. These are part of the evil neighbors, Mondo. Yeah, it, it really, it's amazing, too, that, uh, that God, again, I like the way that you're phrasing it, that God has a plan, and and uh, it, it reminds me of, of when Joshua went in and, and the people, several of the, of the tribes of the groups that were in the land of Canaan, they were so far uh, deplorable uh, that they, God said that the very land wants to vomit them out because of their wickedness and their, their sexual sins and, and their sacrificing of babies and everything to, to these different gods, where God just says, you just have to remove them. And that, I mean, that's God's business. I'm not suggesting that to anybody today, but if God wants to do that and he realizes this is what, because of their wickedness, that's his business. But um, let, let's, let, let's, what, let, let's talk about something here for a minute, because the, how does this uh, God's peace plan, let's kind of transition. How, how do you envision, how do you see it working its way through, let's say, the next stages? Well, the evil neighbors are those who share common borders with Israel. That's why they're appropriately called neighbors. Uh, we see that God's part one of his plan has found fulfillment. Uh, he's simply asking now these evil neighbors to not be evil anymore, but to swear by his name so that they can live peacefully in the midst of his people. But they're not going to. So in part two of this generation that's coming up in the 21st century, uh, we're already starting to see it happen, I believe, with the Gaza, with the Hamas. He's going to really pluck up and destroy those evil neighbor nations. Now, we're not talking about countries far away. We're talking about in the neighborhood. We're talking about to the north, Lebanon, to the northeast, Syria, and parts of Iraq. We're talking about Jordan. Even though Jordan has a fragile peace treaty, they are still among the evil neighbors. Uh, you've got uh, Egypt, you've got Saudi Arabia, you got the Felicia area where the Hamas are, you got the Palestinians. Of course, Hezbollah is up in Lebanon. So basically, these countries form an inner circle of countries. They are actually all listed in Psalm 83 and elsewhere. They want to come together in a confederacy and destroy the nation of Israel. And of course, that's totally against God's plan. He wants them to live copacetically and swear by him, not destroy the nation of Israel. So they're going to try to do that, and ultimately we find out in Zechariah 12, they're going to make a final attempt, the neighbors, the evil neighbors, to lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem. And when that happens, Zechariah 12, 2 tells us that it will be, God will make it like a cup of trembling or a cup of drunkenness to all the peoples round about. Every translation you read will not talk about the nations at large in the world, and not the international community. It's talking about the neighbors roundabout, the surrounding peoples, the neighbors. So he's clearly talking about the evil neighbors. They're going to come together and make a final attempt to capture Jerusalem. And in Islam, Jerusalem is the third holiest city, even though it's not mentioned in the Quran one time. They're going to make a final attempt to take control of that area and Judah as well. And God's going to say that at that time, it's going to be a cup of trembling or intoxication in some translations to those evil neighbors. You don't want to read, uh, read, let's all read this Zechariah 2 and 3, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. It says, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering uh, to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth uh, will gather against it. 
Uh, on that day, declares the Lord, I'll just keep reading, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, but for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the leaders of Judah will say, shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So, you know, this particular section of Zechariah 12, um, it's interesting that it does talk about a siege of Jerusalem and Judah. So would you, how would you equate Zechariah 12? Would that be equated with another angle of a Psalm 83 conflict? Would you see it as pre-Psalm 83, post-Psalm 83? Kind of help, help the listeners understand, again, the sequence here. I think it pretty much deals with the climactic conclusion of Psalm 83 because go ahead and read verse 6, Zechariah 12, verse 6. On that day I will make the clans of Judah, uh, or the leaders of Judah, depending on translation, like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Right, so this this is a siege that's going to be unsuccessful. Uh, it's going to when they try to lay siege on it, the surrounding peoples, the evil neighbors, it's going to be like a cup of trembling to them. And it says in that day, and, and several things build up to what the verse you just read, and I, I would like to break those down in a moment. But ultimately, in that day, the Israeli defense forces, the clans of Judah, are going to be like a fiery torch, and they're going to destroy the evil neighbors around about the surrounding peoples. Uh, on the right hand and on the left hand, and that is going to conclude, uh, this is will devour them in some translations, that is going to conclude this one God's peace plan. They're going to utterly be plucked up and destroyed as nations. And it's going to conclude the Psalm 83 war effort as well. Now, there's another siege on Jerusalem that's going to be successful. This siege is unsuccessful. The siege is going to be successful is dealing down in the tribulation period in Zechariah 14, Verse two says that actually the armies of the world will come together, gather against Jerusalem, and it will, and it will take the city. They'll, they'll ravish the, they'll rifle the houses, ransack the houses. They'll ravish the women, and the city will be taken. Now that's not this siege. That's a, that's a successful siege that happens subsequent. Some people try to confuse Zechariah twelve two with Zechariah fourteen. Yeah, let me let me read. I'll read Zechariah fourteen. You, and again, people can read this for themselves as it relates to the what you just demonstrated. There, a contrast. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I, verse Zechariah fourteen verse two. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile but the rest of the people shall not be cut off. So there will be a little a remnant staying there, the rest. But as you mentioned, clearly that's a successful siege of the city and, and it's taking. Uh, you know, if we go, th this is interesting because in, as it relates to Zechariah 12, what this tells us is that there will be troops, right? W would we say that there'll actually be troops, foreign, non-Israeli troops, ground invasion of, of some kind, uh, again, doing a siege of Judah and Jerusalem itself. I mean, will, will, will there be foreign military in the land? Well, in Zechariah 12, there'll be the surrounding Arab nations that'll be laying siege, trying to take claims over Jerusalem <coughs> Excuse me. and Judah. 
that's not all nations in Zechariah chapter 14. Right, right. So it just as we as we think about uh, the context of Zechariah 12, it, it to me it's just fascinating that what we will see is you know right now it, it's been how long has it been since there's been actual foreign troops and foreign tanks in Israel proper, but according to this passage, uh, they will be there sieging it. They will, and what goes on to say one of the uh, problems. Let, let me skip verse three for a minute because that's one of the verses that people segue into Zechariah 14 with, but let me skip that for a second. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a tickle on my throat, I apologize. So we talk about in that day when the surrounding peoples try to lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem, we're told a couple of verses later in Zechariah 12, verse 4, the Lord is going to divinely intervene. And it says, in that day, I will strike the horses. Now, remember, they're not going to come in horseback to try to lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem, but that's what they rode back in Zechariah's time. But he's going to strike the horses with confusion. There's going to be, in my estimation, um, armored vehicles and things will start to malfunction because the Lord's going to divinely intervene. Then it says, I'll strike the, when that happens, the riders will be hit with madness. In other words, they're going to panic as they see this start to happen. And then it says, I will strike the horses with blindness. In other words, guidance systems. This is my interpretation. Yeah, seems guidance reasonable. Guidance systems are going to go down. And it says in verse 5 that when that happens, that the Israeli, uh, the Jewish people, it says the governors of Judah and the captains of the Israeli defense forces, if you will, will say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of the hosts. So they're going to become emboldened to go to battle. And you read verse 6, which says they go to battle. And they devour those people on the right hand and on the left hand. So this is clearly dealing with the Israeli defense forces, dealing with the evil neighbors. Now, some people would say, no, this is Armageddon. This is, But then you have to say to yourself, well, Armageddon, and let's go back to verse 3 first. Read Zechariah 12, verse 3, and I'll explain why, it's, why, that, why they think that. Yeah, this is important because I think as we get the text out, it'll become obvious. On that day, verse Zechariah 12, 3, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Right, and some translations assemble against it. Mm -hmm. So remember, we're still talking about in that day. In that day that the surrounding Arab peoples, the evil neighbors, attempt to lay siege on Jude and Jerusalem, a final siege, which will be unsuccessful because the Israeli defense forces will win, verse 6. But it goes on to say, in that day, the world's going to meddle with the status of Jerusalem and Judah. In other words, the world's going to meddle. Now, some people think, well, this is going to be Zechariah 14, Joel 3, you know, Revelation 16. We'll get into those in just a moment. But I don't, I don't believe that's what it's saying here, because if you really break it down, let's, here's what I think it says, and I'll tell you why I don't think it says what they're, they're suggesting. It says, in that day, they're going to try to meddle. So we look back in 1947. Uh, the UN, United Nations said that Israel was going to become a state again, which happened on May 14, 1948. But they declared that Jerusalem would be an international zone. So in other words, you can't have it as your capital. It's going to be an international zone. And then in 1948, the Arabs came to war with the Jews, the Arab-Israeli war. And in 1949, the armistice agreement happened. They took a green line, the international community's meddling. They take a green line and run it down the center of Jerusalem, divide the city of Jerusalem. But that, is, that was not biblically endorsed. So in 1967, in the Six-Day War, Israel wins that war and takes over all of Jerusalem. 
So the international community had been meddling, but Israel wins that war, takes over Jerusalem to make the colossal mistake of giving the Temple Mount to the Arabs, to Jordan in particular. But then again, they still control Jerusalem at that point in time. Now we see right now, even we're talking about this at the beginning of the blog here, or the pod spot, podcast, that uh, Biden wants a two-state solution. So we see Clinton tried a two-state solution, and Bush, and Obama, and Kerry, and then uh, we're continuing to meddle. And you look at the nations are assembling against Israel at the United Nations. They don't want you know the, everything they pass is against Israel at this point in time. So I believe what you got really is, at this point is the nations in that day when the Arabs are going to want to take over Jerusalem and Judah, they're going to meddle. And and the Lord is saying, don't meddle because it's going to be like a burdensome stone. It's going to fall on you. You're going to try to divide the city. It's going to fall on you and haunt you, come back and hurt you. That's not what happens in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2. They don't have any problem with the burdensome stone. They move in and just take over the city. They ravage the houses and, and rape the women. So we've got a, a whole different siege going on. And that's a successful siege. This is an unsuccessful siege involving the Arabs. Because if you say in Zechariah 12, verse 6, that they're going to destroy all those peoples round about, and you try to throw an Armageddon, all the nations gathered against Jerusalem, Zechariah 14, 2, that means Israel is going to win a war to the Israeli Defense Forces against Japan, China, the kings of the east. Uh, you know, this is all the whole list of there. All the nations of the world are going to be involved in the Armageddon campaign. Listen, Israel can't even stop the Gog and Magog invasion in Ezekiel 38 because God has to do that supernaturally, which in my estimation precedes Zechariah, Armageddon, <coughs> Zechariah 14, let alone try to stop them at the end of the tribulation at Armageddon when two-thirds of the Jewish people have already been killed in Zechariah 13.8 and a third of them will be in exile in Petra. So to, to think that they're going to come back into Jerusalem as a remnant after the final era of Israeli war of Zechariah 12 and come back in Zechariah 12.6 and destroy all these nations of the world. And that's not what it says. It says only the people round about will be devoured on the right hand and the left hand. So we need to really look at that closely. So, you know, the uh, there definitely is some some contrasting material. You know, what do you say to the objection? You know, as you know, there are many people object to seeing Zechariah 12. They, Like you said, they equate it with Armageddon. But in Zechariah 12, 3, the last sentence, um, and all the nations of the earth will assemble against it. So there it's, it's using the phrase, all of the nations of the earth, not so much the neighbors. Um, I know those that object would, would, would try to use that as a way to say that this is not just a uh, the, na the neighboring, it's all the nations of the earth, similar to Zechariah 14. What's your thoughts? You know, they say in that day that happens, and in that day that the Arabs try to lay siege on Judah and Jerusalem, and in that day that the captains and clans of Judah win against the surrounding Arab nations, and it's that same time frame. And to me, I'm basically saying that's a warning to the international community, don't meddle, you're going to assemble against it. And of course, the United Nations is an assembly against pretty much against Israel. So I would lean toward that interpretation. I don't see that as all the nations are gathering together for battle. Uh, because when they do do that, they don't have a burdensome stone with Jerusalem. They take the city. And it's not a problem for them. They, it's a successful siege. This is an unsuccessful siege. So so in, in that sense that even though you have um, the low... So to, to, again, interpretation is very important. So you'd have a local coalition, a, a neighboring coalition, actually gathering together with troops. But in general... 
the they're going to have the backing maybe of the United Nations. It, it, would that kind of be all the nation of the earth will be assembled like a posture against Israel versus actually being there? Yeah, in other words, <clears throat> the world's going to meddle with the status of Jerusalem, and it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to side with the Arabs, but they're going to get meddled with the status and the fate of Jerusalem, which they've been doing since Israel <laughs> right. in 1947. Yeah, United Nations and, passing. And God's uh, saying, don't do that. Uh -huh. don't, don't do that. That's the Jewish people's place. Yep. You know, and they're going to win a war against the Arab countries that are trying to lay siege on it. Stay out, stay out of the fray is what he's warning them. So, you know, in the sense of kind of uh, heading towards a, a wrap-up, the you just you mentioned a variety of things, and there's no doubt, man, Israel is not going to have any peace in, in the sense of long-term, as we know, until the second coming, in the sense of, uh, you know, forever peace. But between here and the Lord's second coming, or the rapture, let's talk about that. The timing of the rapture versus what we see is these, these next few wars— all the way through the tribulation, where again you have all of that coming to the Lord's return. Um, what do you see as uh, outline for us, if you will, kind of a sequence of events between right now potential? You're not you're not a prophet. Between what do you see some of the high points between now all the way up until the second coming? What are some of uh, what what's the sequence you have in your mind? Well, I have a book called The Future of War Prophecies, which where I do that very thing, Mondo. You guys are actually carrying the book and DVD through Prophecy Watchers, and and of course the Rapture is you know we don't know exactly when that's going to happen. Besides the fact that we would subscribe to it, it'll happen before the tribulation. But there's also some pre-tribulation events. Matter of fact, you and I did a DVD on that, the Road to Armageddon, the pre-tribulational wars. Uh, there's going to be some wars before the tribulation. I believe that would be Psalm 83, which involves climactic conclusion of Zechariah 12, where the Israeli defense forces take out the, the evil neighbors we just talked about. Uh, other peripheral verses I put in the Future War Prophecies book. Uh, I think Psalm 83 is related to that. I think that's going to happen. Israeli defense forces are going to win. Uh, you know, a Hamas, would, if they're still around and kicking, as part of Felicia. Felicia is part of Psalm 83, one of the Confederate members of the 10-member Confederacy. Uh, then I think after that, Israel can dwell securely. They can tear down the walls that surround Israel, the partition wall in the middle of Israel, 403-mile wall. They can dwell securely, uh, peaceful people. Uh, plunder and booty, and then I think you have Ezekiel 38 come. That's what Israel finds itself in that condition, no longer threatened by the evil neighbors. They dwell securely because they can. They've won the war. Uh, then I think Ezekiel 38 will happen as Israel becomes a robust nation. More Jews start coming back into the land when it's safer, exploiting the territories. Israel annexes some territory, Jordan in particular. I put, I'll put all this in the Future Wars Prophecies book. And then Ezekiel 38. And then God stops that because it's too formidable of an offense for the Israeli Defense Forces. So God stops that supernaturally with an earthquake, fire and brimstone, bloodshed, flooding rains, pestilence. And then ultimately at that point, Israel can dwell securely. They're actually burying, burning the weapons for seven years, converting it to fuel from the Russian armies, the coalition. They're burying the dead for seven months. And it says the whole world well, Israel gained renown in the eyes of the world. When the world sees that, they go, whoa. The Israeli Defense Forces stopped the three countries. Their gods stopped the Russian invasion advance. They're burning weapons, converting it to fuel. They have the technology. They're burying the dead for seven months of 
how that all happened, how their God stopped it supernatural, and the world's going to be going, ah, oh, that's amazing. They'll still be anti-Semitic because they're going to rally around the Antichrist who's going to come on the scene, but they're going to be taken back watching these things happen. Israeli Defense Forces win Psalm 83, their God stops Russia's invasion, and all of a sudden the Antichrist comes on the scene. And ultimately he will, in the mid part of the tribulation, he will go into uh, Israel and he'll start abominate the temple, he'll bring his armies there, and I believe that's actually probably when Zechariah 14, 2 happens, he gathers his armies there, and they take the city, and he goes, and Jesus said, when you see that happen, Antichrist goes into the temple at the mid part of the trib, flee, and we find out a lot of them do, but two-thirds of them don't, and they get killed, according to Zechariah 13, 8, then ultimately they are exiled in Petra, southern Jordan, as refugees, which is another reason they're not going to be at the end of the tribulation in Armageddon be able to have the strength as refugees to kill all the nations of the world in Jerusalem. Uh, God, we find out in Isaiah 63 that God stops the... There's <laughs> a, a, lot, a lot to talk about here, but ultimately yeah, the Armageddon situation and Jesus Christ comes and has a slaughtered Basra in southern Jordan, Isaiah 63, single-handedly. And then in Revelation 19, he goes and gets his armies from heaven and he comes back to Jerusalem with them. So a lot of stuff in my book, Mondo, we can't get into all this stuff right now in this moment because it's too much to say. But Psalm 83, Ezekiel 38, and then ultimately the end of the tribulation, the Armageddon campaign. You know, it's amazing, Bill. That, I mean, that's a great summary that as as we're watching, there, there's a lot. The Lord has provided so much detail as it relates to the last days and the final um, the final circumstances of Israel leading up to the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the Lord's return, as you mentioned, the rescuing of Israel. So why Romans eleven twenty five that all Israel will be saved. And, you know, so what's, you know, the, the average person here that's watching, you know, or listening in that regard, uh, let, let's, let's give them some hope. What, what's the hope? Certainly the gospel. What, but what's the hope here? How does this, how does this end up? Okay. Listen, the, the what I would say in summary, Mondo, and again, thanks for having me on this this podcast, is that it's time to get right with Jesus Christ because he's coming for his believers in the rapture, and ultimately he's going to come a second time in the second coming for the faithful remnant. And he, at that time he's going to destroy the Antichrist. He's going to cast them alive with the false prophet in the lake of fire. He's going to deal with the armies of Armageddon, win that war. But ultimately... You know, welcome to a war-torn world. You're already seeing it happen in the Middle East with the Gaza and the Hamas. That's likely to escalate. And, and certainly at some point the prophecies will find fulfillment. It could actually pivot right off of this war with Hamas right now into Psalm 83, ultimately Ezekiel 38, and then the granddaddy, the Armageddon War campaign at the end of the tribulation. But it's, it's temporary. The, the thing to note is that if you're in Christ, one, you're going to be taken out in the rapture. You may see some of these wars that are pre-tribulation, but you will be with Christ in the rapture. And then ultimately, these wars are temporary. I'm going to have, Mondo, if you'll read Micah 2, Micah 4, a couple of verses in Micah 4, let the viewers know that these wars are going to come, but they, they are temporary. There'll be no more war ultimately in the Messianic kingdom. Yeah, this is Micah 4, verse 2, um, where he says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between peoples, and shall decide 
disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There you go. That's that's the good news, Mondo, right there. Amen. Ultimately, when Jesus comes at the second coming, after all the bloody wars, Psalm 83, Ezekiel 38, the Armageddon campaign, uh, he's going to end it all. And he's going to have this beautiful messianic kingdom for a thousand years, the millennium, and there'll be no more war. And you need to be a part of that by receiving Jesus Christ today and assure yourself to be in that particular wonderful environment in the messianic kingdom. Amen. Well, Bill, I appreciate your your being on the program today. For those listening to the podcast, um, you know, again, the, the the scripture's given us so much to to examine. God has given this for a reason for us to understand the times that we're in and and also to see scripture unfold so that again it points ultimately to the truth of the rest of scripture uh, which is the gospel message and as bill said uh, salvation through jesus christ alone so appreciate you listening this week uh, catch us next time next time we're going to continue to to keep you updated as uh prophecy is being fulfilled Well, Tyler's got his hands full on that one, man. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> a lot of post-production. Uh, <clears throat> you're talking to you, I'm like, oh my God.